So, it's been a bit of a rough week this week. It started well enough, but then I got a serious case of man flu. Man flu is always very serious, of course. Doctors say that the only known treatment is exclusive use of the TV remote control, a subscription to Sky Sports, and a regular supply of cold beers hand-delivered to the sofa. But my man flu was so serious that I had to miss Thursday night's alpha, which kind of shows that God must have a sense of humour because the subject was, does God heal today? I didn't think that if I went, that I'd get much of a response if I asked people, would you like me to pray for God to heal you, while I was coughing and spluttering all over them. And then on top of that, on Friday night, in my man-flu-ridden state, I slipped on some stairs and I smashed my big toe. So now I'm hobbling as well. So if I'm not quite my normal sparkling self today, I hope that you'll understand. So as Lynn said, this is our third uh, and last in our current series on some big questions about the Bible and Christianity. And if you've only started coming to the vineyard these past three weeks, you may be thinking, gosh, the talks are a bit heavy. Are they always going to be like this? And you'll be very pleased to know that they're not. In fact, we've got some great speakers uh, coming up and normal service will be resumed uh, next week. But, you know, the thing about big questions is that they don't have easy answers. That's why they're big questions in the first place. So sometimes we do have to dig a little bit deeper than usual to help them to make sense. And today's subject is one of those. We're going to try to address the question of, do all roads lead to God? What should our approach be towards other religions? Now, for some of us, the answer may be obvious. There's nothing to talk about. Our religion is right, everyone else's is wrong, the Bible says, and that's the end of it. But for others of us, especially those of us who are very conscious of living in a postmodern world, we find ourselves a bit uncomfortable with that. Because even if our beliefs are right and other people's are wrong, We're not sure that it's going to win us any friends if we start from that standpoint. And yet, surely, what we believe must be important, mustn't it? After all, not everything can be right. So how do we reconcile that? Especially if believing the right things is the only way for someone to be saved. Now, I remember many years ago when I was a young Christian and I'd just recently started working in the Lloyd's insurance market, I met someone called Cyril who told me that he was a Christadelphian. So I asked my church leader what a Christadelphian was and he said they were a cult, which was shorthand for not proper Christians because they didn't believe all the right things. So obviously, having heard this, I started to view this man Cyril with some suspicion, in case something bad rubbed off on me, in case I caught heresy by mistake. And that's even more serious than man flu, by the way. But the thing that bothered me was that Cyril was a much nicer person than I was. And 
a much nicer person than most of the proper Christians I knew who did believe all the right things. Although I have to say, I often wonder if all the Christians who go to so-called proper churches had to sit an exam about what they believed, how many of us would pass? Anyway, it wouldn't be wrong to say that Cyril was one of the most Christ-like people that I had ever met. Uh, According to their website, it says Christadelphians aim to read the Bible every day. It says for over 150 years, we've used an annual Bible reading program that takes us through the entire Bible and the New Testament twice each year. I wonder how many of us can say that. It goes on, the name Christadelphians means brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're a worldwide community of individuals who try to follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. Our members are united by a shared faith based entirely on the Bible and look forward eagerly to the completion of God's great plan for mankind, the setting up of God's kingdom, when Jesus returns to the earth as the appointed king. That doesn't sound too wrong, does it? Not so far, anyway. I didn't see anything there about legalizing marijuana or child sacrifices, or Satan worship. And Cyril was certainly doing a pretty good job of following the teachings and example of Jesus, so far as I could see. But this little question from uh, years, this little story from many years ago, raised lots of questions in my mind, and maybe they're questions that you might have wondered about as well. Forgive me if this sounds a little irreverent, but I've often wondered, when we die and we're standing at the pearly gates, and St. Peter is standing there, I've often wondered, what is the minimum you need to know to get into heaven? Will there be an exam at that point? Or, in relation to my Christadelphian friend Cyril, how far wrong can you afford to be in what you believe and still get in? Or maybe neither of these is the right way to look at it. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but it's not that long ago that we used to execute people for believing the wrong things. The last heretic to be put to death in this country was someone called Edward Whiteman, 400 years ago. And the list of charges against him was pretty impressive. He believed that he personally was the Messiah, or alternatively, the Holy Spirit, and also Elijah. The creeds were all lies, Jesus was not God, baptism is wicked, communion is evil, and last but not least, God had ordained him to be the saviour of the world. So obviously he was burnt at the stake for all that, as you do. The last heretic to be executed in any Christian context was in Spain just 200 years ago. Cayetano Ripoll was a schoolteacher who foolishly said he didn't believe in Jesus, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Virgin Mary, the Gospels, or, and this was clearly the clincher, the infallibility of the Catholic Church. So obviously, he had to go as well. Now, although we've stopped executing people for heresy, it's only been in the last hundred years at most that this question of, what to think about other religions has been something that people really needed to think about. You see, before then, people didn't travel very much. Communications were pretty basic. No TV or radio or internet or air travel. And there wasn't much immigration. 
So people didn't have much contact with other cultures and the religions that came with those other cultures. Pretty much everybody in this country thought of themselves as Christian. So there really wasn't anybody to have an interfaith dialogue with. But now, of course, the very opposite is the case. We have instantaneous communications. We see and hear what's going on in the world the same day on TV and the internet. When I was at school in late Victorian times, RE lessons, religious education, was just Christianity. But now we all know a thousand times more about other countries and cultures than we used to, thanks to package holidays and budget airlines and mass immigration from the Commonwealth in particular to fill the labour shortage that we had after World War II. So because we live in a far more pluralistic society with lots of other nationalities and cultures represented, we cannot but be aware of other religions as well. And this is asking us questions as Christians about how we think about other religions and cultures. Questions that we never had to answer even 50 years ago. Coinciding with this is that one of the highest values for postmodern people is tolerance and respect for the views of others. Which makes them distinctly uncomfortable about saying that any religion has exclusive ownership of all of the truth about God. And this is why postmodern people tend to say that what you've found to be true for you is great, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be true for me. So let's have a look, shall we, at what the Bible has to say about this question. And what we're going to find is that if we pick certain verses, we will appear to get one view. But if we look at other verses, then they will appear to be giving us a slightly different view. So, for example, in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. 1 John 5 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And Acts 4 says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Clear enough, you would think. Salvation is only available through Christ. Clearly, that is true. But the Bible also says in 1 John 2 that he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Which suggests that Christ's sacrificial death is also somehow effective for everyone. And we get this wider sense in other verses as well. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that it's not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. And in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Which is interesting when we know that not everyone gets to hear the gospel. So how do we deal with the apparent tension in these sets of verses? Now, if we want to read the Bible well on any subject, 
there are two mistakes that we need to avoid. One is to take an individual verse and assume that it sums up all that we need to know all on its own. And the other mistake, which is just as bad, is to dismiss individual verses that we simply don't like the sound of. So when we're trying to figure out what the Bible has to say on something, we need to try to avoid both kinds of mistake. We're looking, if we can, to find the best reading, the one that best answers the the tension that we sometimes find in different verses, the reading that offers the best fit with the nature and character of the God who gave us these divinely inspired verses in the first place. If you ask a theologian, which isn't necessarily something that I would always recommend, but if you ask a theologian, they will say there are basically three approaches as to how to read what the Bible is saying on the question of other religions. One approach is called pluralism, another is called exclusivism, and the other is called inclusivism. Pluralism, exclusivism, and inclusivism. So let me explain each one and we'll see what the pros and cons are. So we'll start with pluralism, which comes from the word plural, meaning more than one. Pluralism is saying that all roads lead to God and that Jesus is just one way that God's revealed himself among many other ways. And you can easily see how attractive that would sound especially if you're someone who thinks that religion is the cause of wars and injustice and prejudice, and you're tired of people arguing about whose religion is right or best. Another advantage of pluralism is that it deals with the question of people being lost just because they've never heard the gospel, even though they've been sincerely following the only religion that they knew existed. It fits nicely with the idea that a loving God would want to save as many people as possible by as many means as possible. So it sounds very fair and reasonable. It's got lots of nice features. But there are some big problems as well. All religions may lead to God, but what qualifies as a religion? Can I have my own personal religion? Can I make up my own rules? Now, according to Wikipedia, so it must be right, there's over 4,000 religions in the world. Do all of them lead to God? And if not, which ones do and which ones don't? And who decides? What happens if someone doesn't follow their religion very well? And if we say, well, we don't know, only God knows, then we're kind of back where we started from. Does secular humanism count as a religion, even though God doesn't feature in it? Is Facebook a religion? I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. But you know, the biggest problem from a Christian point of view is that however much we might want to be nice and inclusive and not come across as arrogant, the biggest problem is that pluralism is saying there's nothing particularly special or unique about Jesus. If all roads lead to God anyway, then he needn't have bothered to come and die for the world. He could have just put in a guest appearance some other way. 
If 3,999 other religions are equally valid, then Jesus rather wasted his time, didn't he? So pluralism carries with it an implicit denial that God did something essential and something unique through his Son for the salvation of the world. And that brings us on to the great strength of the second approach, which is exclusivism. And this is what you might think of as the classic Christian position that most people would assume most Christians believe. And here, there is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is essential and unique. So exclusivism says that not only is Jesus the only way to be saved, but that salvation is exclusively available, or only available, to those who've responded to the gospel, explicitly heard the gospel, and explicitly responded to it. Exclusivism looks to the question that the crowd asked on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, when they said, what should we do? And Peter said, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the question the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So there's lots of Bible verses that can lead us to this exclusivist position. And of course it gives us a really strong motive for being passionate about sharing the gospel with people. But the slight problem with quoting these stories from Acts, what must I do to be saved, is that they're questions that people are asking in response to having heard the gospel. So they're not actually telling us anything about people who haven't heard the gospel. The problem with exclusivism is that it seems incompatible with the nature and character of a God who loves the world and wants everyone possible to spend eternity with him. Because it doesn't seem to go very far in putting that everyone possible bit into practice. Because exclusivism says, it's not my problem that millions of people have never heard of Jesus through no fault of their own, but will still be lost. Many Christians feel uncomfortable that God would have designed a system in which the only way that people can be saved guarantees that only a small minority ever will be saved. Because if he did design it that way, then maybe he's not quite so wonderful and loving after all. And it's those doubts, those concerns, that exclusivism doesn't speak well of God's nature and character that lead many people to option three, which is inclusivism. Now, inclusivism in this context doesn't mean treating everybody the same. It's a word to describe what the Bible means when it says that everyone is included in the scope of what Jesus has done. A bit like the verse we looked at a bit earlier in 1 John 2 that says Jesus' sacrifice atoned for the sins of all the world, not just a privileged few who've heard and responded to the gospel. Inclusivism is not saying that all roads lead to God, as pluralism does, because Jesus is still the only saviour. But it's no longer saying, as exclusivism does, that you must have explicitly heard and you must have explicitly responded. 
So it allows for the potential of God's grace extending to people who want to know him and want to love him and want to follow him, but have never heard about him in the way that we have. It means we can reconcile God wanting as many as possible to be saved with the fact that not everyone has had the opportunity to be saved. It means God doesn't condemn people for failing to respond to something that they don't know about because no one can be expected to love a Jesus that they've never heard of. And nor, I suggest, would they be condemned for failing to respond to a TV evangelist begging for money to pay for his private jet or a preacher standing on a street corner shouting Bible verses at people, even if they are technically getting the gospel right when they're doing it. So inclusivism is looking to the heart and scriptures like Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. It doesn't say that everyone will be saved irrespective of whether they could care less about loving God or knowing God or doing the things that he loves in the way that they live this life. That would be universalism. And that violates not just free will, but God's justice as well. But it does allow for the possibility that someone could spend a lifetime asking and seeking and knocking in this life, but that the finding and the receiving only happens at the end of this life. It allows for the possibility that you can be faithfully loving and serving God as best you know and understand him within the limited horizon and the constraints of another religion and still have Jesus fulfill your heart's desire by answering your asking and seeking and knocking by keeping his Matthew 7 promise at the end of life. It allows for the possibility that God is at work in some way in the hearts of people who are truly seeking to love and follow God within the only framework that they currently have access to that happens to be another religion because Jesus' work is sufficient for the salvation of those people as well once they become aware of the truth. And it also allows for the possibility that this may have been what Jesus meant in that very mysterious verse in John 10:16 where he said i have other sheep which are not of this fold i must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd some people think that what he meant by this was the gentiles some think that he meant aliens from another planet but this i think is as good an explanation as any And the final benefit of inclusivism is that it speaks to God's compassion in not allowing good people to be deluded by false religions and be lost as a consequence. That God won't stand for that. He won't let that happen, even if the religion that they're following in good faith is wrong. If they're genuinely seeking God, if they're genuinely seeking the truth because they want to know God and love God, It's hard to see God failing to honour that, even if circumstances mean they won't find that out in this life. 
to the extent that God can be found in some limited and incomplete way in other religions, not because those religions are right, but purely because of his love and grace and mercy and compassion in drawing people to himself, then I think that God would want that to happen. I always think of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Now, some may say, well, I still think there's no way that it's possible to find God at all in any religion except Christianity. And I certainly get that. But if we think for a moment, isn't that rather what happened in the Old Testament, which is part of our Bible, even though Jesus only appears there in hints and shadows and forward-looking references. Clearly, the heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, and so on, clearly they didn't explicitly respond to the gospel because they never explicitly heard the gospel. But clearly, God was present and active, even though it was technically a non-Christian religion. God knew that they could only be expected to respond faithfully to what they knew of him at the time and what he asked of them at the time based upon what he'd revealed to them at the time. Maybe that's in a similar way to how we only expect children to respond to what they know of God and what he asks of them based upon what he's revealed to them. So inclusivism does not say that all roads lead to God. And it doesn't say that all religions are equal. It doesn't say that all religions understand God correctly, his nature and character and what he's like. And it certainly doesn't say that all religions are experiencing God in the same way he's experienced in Christianity through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So we can be clear about that. In fact, one of the great tragedies is how religions do so misunderstand and misrepresent who God is and what he's like. And people don't get the same opportunity to experience the God that we know and love. So say that that we like the sound of inclusivism amongst these three options. Why bother to spread the gospel at all? Well, there are several reasons for that. One of them is that it might be wrong. Another is that even if to some extent it's right, Only through the main and the plain of what the Bible says can we be sure and be assured of our salvation now. Because there is no doubt about what the Bible mainly says and plainly says about the salvation of all who have accepted Jesus. So the ultimate fate of people who follow other religions, however faithfully and however passionately, is out of our hands. So we can never be completely sure. All we can do is to trust in the mercy and kindness of God, that our sense that inclusivism is the explanation that's most consistent with God's nature and character is right. So I'm comfortable with that because it speaks well of God and it enhances his reputation, whereas I feel that exclusivism harms his reputation. And it also seems to fit well with the loving and compassionate God that we see in Jesus. It helps us to make sense of the two features of what Paul wrote to Timothy. This is good and pleases our 
pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. But the greatest reason for us still sharing the gospel is because it isn't all about going to heaven when we die. It includes that, and we want people to have that, but we just as much want people to be able to enjoy knowing him now. Jesus says in John 17 that the definition of eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son now. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he wants people to know Christ and the power of his resurrection now. We want to see people's lives transformed and the power of God breaking in and answer prayer and the moving of the Holy Spirit in people's lives and families and the blessing of God now, not just in the afterlife. We want them to experience God now in glorious technicolor, not just in hints and shadows and fuzzy images in other religions that may or may not bear some resemblance to what God is really like. So finally, how should we go about sharing our faith with people who are sincerely and faithfully following other religions? And I'd like to briefly suggest three principles to follow. Number one is, be nice. Treat people how you'd want them to treat you. I think Jesus said something like that, didn't he? So be respectful. Honour good people. If they're doing their best to love and follow God within the limitations of what they know and what they've been told. Number two, ask lots of questions. And be genuinely interested. Do more asking and listening than you do telling. Let the Holy Spirit do most of the work. You know, the old evangelical idea of having to get the gospel in as soon as we possibly can, however clumsily and inappropriately we may end up doing it, instead of building relationships and journeying with people, has not always been very helpful. If you ask questions and take an interest in people, they're far more likely to do the same with you. And number three, share with them your experiences of God. Don't just tell them what the Bible says is true. Tell them about what you've found to be true. Focus on what God is like and what it means to you to know him personally, how he's kind and gracious and loving. And use scriptures to support that. Explain how the Jesus you know has made a difference in your life. Tell them about your answered prayers from the God who is active in this world and who loves and cares for us. Because if Phil and Kirsty are right and property is all about location, 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 then postmodern evangelism is all about story, story, story. We win people to the Jesus we want them to know by drawing them in to the Jesus that we know. So as Mike Pilavachi says, don't just drop Bible bombs on people. And certainly, don't just try to win an argument because all that proves is that we're more argumentative than they are. So Dan, I wonder if you're here, I could ask you to come back.
So we're going to close with um, an opportunity for some prayer, uh, what we call ministry time. If you'd like someone to pray with you about anything at all, um, maybe something, I don't know, maybe something that God has spoken to you about during the talk or something that uh, he's spoken to you about during worship, something that he's, he's stirred up inside you, something you'd like to respond to and have someone pray with you about that, then this is the opportunity uh, to do that. So maybe we can stand together.